This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II Podcast. Episode 205, Chiang Kai-shek's Pyrrhic Victory. Last time, the Japanese Expeditionary Forces commander had asked Tokyo for five more divisions, as the Chinese were proving more difficult than expected. Still, General Matsui Iwane had been able to expand his holdings along the coast, just north of Shanghai. Yet, there was one last holdout the village and fort of Baoshan, located between Shizilin and Wusan. Once that was taken and his reinforcements arrived, General Matsue would then be ready to push west on one large front and finally make the stubborn Chinese see the light of reason of Japanese dominance. As the Japanese 3rd Lucky Division moved out to attack Baoshan, they realized its thick ancient walls would present a major stumbling block, and that many lives of the third would be lost in trying to accomplish this task. So, rather unexpectedly, the attacking division had bombers fly over the town and fort. But instead of dropping bombs, leaflets asking the defenders to give up were released. However, as the 28-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Yao had already messaged to Chiang Kai-shek, the town would be held to the last. General Matsui approved the Third's plan to drop paper instead of ordnance, but didn't have much faith in it. It also caused him to lose faith in the Third. Sometime on the afternoon of September 4th, as the lucky Third approached the town, its leadership decided to wait until the next day to launch their attack. Perhaps those inside would change their mind. But this was too much for General Matsui. He exploded and ordered for an immediate assault. However, taking the thick walls into consideration, he first loaned the division an artillery unit. Just before the sun set on September 4th, the attack of Baoshan was launched. The guns damaged the walls eventually putting holes in them. This was followed up by a charge from the third. But, try as they might, the men of the third 
could not only climb the walls, nor could they use the recently made holes. With staggering losses, the lucky division pulled back when darkness came. The Japanese division rested that night, hoping for better luck on the morrow. At noon the next day, September 5th, Japanese bombers and their ship's guns started pounding the village and its fort. After an hour of this, tanks were brought up to lead a new charge. Ignoring the damaged walls, the tanks went for the city's main gate and were able to gain entry, the infantry just behind them. Lieutenant Colonel Yao sent two messages to the 98th Infantry Division headquarters. The first was a request for reinforcements, as so far they had been able to hold out. Yet no help would come, as the enemy controlled the area around Baoshan. The second message was short and direct, that the battalion of the 98th would continue to fight until they were no more. By the time the second message went out, Yao only had about 100 men left. But their mission was now made simple. They would kill as many enemy troops as they could before they themselves were dead. Amazingly, the defenders held out in their ever-shrinking perimeter until sunset. Then the Japanese stopped their attacks, not wanting to pursue, until the dawn brought bomber support. That night, both sides slept as all around them was quiet. The daylight of September 6th would see the end of this fight, one way or the other. The Japanese renewed their attack at dawn, with help from the skies as the defensive perimeter became reduced to a few structures. As the end neared, Yao sent out one man to deliver a message to his superiors. In the chaos, the man made good his escape, but before his message was delivered, Yao and his battalion of the 98th were no more. His message read, We are determined to stay at our posts and to continue fighting the enemy until each and every one of us is killed. The Battle of Baoshan had started and ended with this sentiment. The first had been an order, the last a dutiful boast. With the fall of Baoshan, the 3rd Division was about to move west, away from the coast, and meet up with the 11th Division. Now the Japanese held one solid piece of enemy territory, but the news only got better. On the same day as Baoshan fell, the Taida Detachment, another part of the 3rd Infantry Division, had landed at the Japanese Golf Club, about 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers south of Wusong just on the west side of the Huangpu River, and secured the area. It was quickly converted to the Ganda Airfield. With this in hand, the Japanese 2nd Combined Air Group landed and established itself. Until now, the only land-based airfield the Japanese had was the large island of Chongming in the Yangtze Estuary. Now the invaders could project their air power and dominance further inland. And what's more, arrive at any trouble spots sooner. The good news for General Matsui only continued. Tokyo was about to send him all the reinforcements he had asked for, and more. On September 7th, Tokyo ordered the 9th, 13th, and 101st Infantry Divisions to Shanghai, as well as the Shigeto Detachment from Taiwan. 
but that was only the first part. On the same day, Army headquarters ordered 10 other Japanese infantry battalions from the northeast of China to join the fight. Of course, the Chinese defenders did not know any of this, and yet the morale of its officers was already sinking, as they had lost thousands of men so far. As for the rank and file, they still seemed willing to fight and to die for their country. Also desiring to continue fighting was Chiang Kai-shek, and for him, the first priority, as his reinforcements were also en route, was to retake Lodian. It was still the westernmost position of the enemy, and hence had to be salvaged, if the Japanese were to be driven back to the river. Which is exactly what he told his senior commanders when he ordered them all to the 3rd War Zone's headquarters in Suzhou. The officers complied, and shortly, entire divisions were being sent to retake the town. During one such attack, Kueweda, one of the 51st Infantry Division's regimental commanders, led a force about two companies strong to Lodian. They approached at night as the enemy closest to them was mostly asleep. The Chinese troops crept towards the men and shot and stabbed them before they could rise. When the nearest enemy unit was dispatched, the Chinese began to slowly backpedal, knowing a counter-assault was being formed. Soon, the fighting was renewed as other Japanese troops arrived, but the Chinese kept retreating in an organized way. Their actions so far were nothing more than a feint, as they were hoping to draw an ever-larger response that could be lured into no-man's land. When Kuei Weida's troops had the Japanese at a prearranged point, he shot a flare into the night sky. Instantly, a hidden line of Chinese troops opened fire. Kuei watched the slaughter through his binoculars. Within seconds, this second group of enemy troops lay dead or dying. The same stunt was pulled closer to Lodian to weaken its defenses. Many Japanese troops were slaughtered during the night, but it did not stop their commanders from wanting to push further west. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. At this point in the Battle of Shanghai, early September, the Japanese controlled a sliver of coastland from Shangchakou, just north of the city, to Wusong, within northern Shanghai. 
and a stand-alone section a bit to the west of the middle of that territory at the village of Lodien. However, this was not one continuous piece of land. In between Lodien and the coastal strip was no man's land, where neither side could truthfully claim ownership. This is what the Japanese wanted to alter, as well as pushing out further west, just below Lodian. If this could be accomplished, then they would have enough room to launch their major attempt to take all of Shanghai when their reinforcements arrived. But first things first. Parts of the 3rd Lucky Division would advance straight out of Baoshan, but relative to the coastline, this would send them along the main road in a southwesterly direction. First, they would take the village of Lusing, and then moving further forward, take Yangxing, about four miles or six and a half kilometers to the southwest. Meanwhile, the 11th Division's Ameya detachment would move out from Baoshan to the west by northwest and take the village of Yepu, again about four miles or 6.5 kilometers away. This would not only help secure their coastal strip, but give them control of a road that led to Lodian, to the west, which would give them control of this part of no man's land. Then, if they could push just a little further west, by a mile or so, the Ameya detachment would be able to link up with the 11th Division around Lodian, thus giving them total control of the area behind Lodian. This would also give them most of the room they needed to house the reinforcements coming, to launch their all-out attack on Shanghai to the south. Before the sun rose on September 11th, the Japanese used their dominance of artillery and naval firepower to soften up the Chinese defenders that would be attacked to the west. When there was just enough sunlight, the Japanese bombers and fighters joined in, causing more chaos for the Chinese. When it was deemed appropriate, the Japanese infantries advanced. The Chinese troops on the ground could tell that something was different about this latest attack. The pre-charge bombardment had been more intense than anything they had experienced to date, and though their officers were on the verge of desperation, the troops themselves were still determined to deny any more land to the hated Japanese. No, they didn't have the large guns, nor could their planes stay in the air very long. But each man seemed willing to give up his life as long as he could take several enemy troops with him. The Japanese troops came on, but found themselves stymied by the defenders, who seemed careless of death. By the time the sun sank that day, the detachment from the 3rd Lucky Division had not even reached Yansing, just four miles away. They had managed to travel for about a mile, where their artillery had devastated everything there, including the Chinese defenders. But once they reached that point, the defenders just behind that location offered up such a resistance, it would have been suicide to continue. By the time the local Japanese commanders figured this out, the sun was starting to set. Not enough time to bombard again and then attack. What's more, as the Japanese knew from painful experience, once darkness came, the Chinese would begin to move about and harass them 
in every way they could. What the attackers had yet to figure out was that the Chinese were using the many canals in the area, lying low until the attackers were almost upon them, to then jump up and issue a withering response at point-blank range. As for Yangtzeing further to the southwest, that was still completely in the defenders' possession. To the west by northwest, the 11th Division's Amaya Detachment had fared no better. To be sure, due to the pre-attack bombardment, they had reached the eastern edge of Yepu, and the village itself was totally destroyed. But the men of the Maya Detachment could not gain entry into the former village. Again, the closer they got, the more men they lost. It was soon tactically not worth trying to go any further. During the late evening of September 11th, the Chinese troops gloried in their victory. Yes, they had lost many comrades, but the battle lines had hardly changed, and wasn't that the ultimate guide of how victory was determined? But not so for their immediate commanders. While the troops told each other of their heroic deeds that night, their officers became only more worried about the overall situation. Yes, their men had fought bravely, but many had died even before the fighting had started, due to the enemy's artillery, naval guns, and bombers. And that part of the equation wasn't going to change anytime soon. The area that had been contested that day was mostly of rice and cotton fields, few, if any, trees to hide behind. When the sun rose the next day, the Japanese would again bombard their troops, who had no place to hide for protection. This negativity spread up the ranks. The Chinese commanders knew that, at the beginning of this war, the equation would be trading the lives of their soldiers in order to stay close enough to the coast to take the fight to the enemy. The hope had been that the invaders could be pushed back into the rivers before they got a toehold, but that was exactly what had happened. The Japanese had their beachhead and could not be forced to give it up due to their technological advantages, which meant at some point, now or later, the Chinese would have to pull back out of range of those naval guns or lose too many lives before each attack came. The question was, when should they pull back? certainly before they lost too many men as to not be able to launch future attacks. Of course, a pullback would mean causing a breach between those men defending northern Shanghai, namely Zhang's 9th Army Group, and those defending the area to its north, that of Chen Chang's 15th Army Group. That would give the Japanese, with their tanks, the room they needed to move further west and then to either turn north or south. Either way, one of the defending groups would be cut off and obliterated. The result then was predictable enough. But to his credit, General Gu Zhutong, one of Chiang Kai-shek's inner circle, who was now the deputy commander of the Third War Zone, wanted to stay and fight, even with his witnessing of the destruction that came from the enemy's artillery. His answer to the question, how long should his men stay in place, even though many were getting killed before each contest got underway, was, 
a little longer. Whereas General Zhang Zihong wanted to pull back now to give his men respite from those guns. Both answers were acceptable and respectable in their own way. These two points of view battled each other up the chain of command. The nationalist leader sensed this and wrote in his diary, In recent days, the military situation has turned for the worse, and morale is starting to waver. Our troops have been forced into a passive role. This line of thought evolved into the idea of trading land for time. That night of September 11th, the decision was made. The defenders of the two army groups were ordered to pull back by several miles. Only after complete darkness came did the men quickly and quietly pack up and move out. The Japanese had no idea of what was happening. That victory was theirs for now. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just two bits of information, and then I'll let you go. Um, One, we're having another Harry's um, Shaving Set giveaway. So when you get a chance, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put in the subject line, Big Daddy Ray. I will be doing the drawing no more than three weeks from now. So get those in as soon as you can. Also, um, if you're looking for something a little different from yours truly, um, I can't believe I just said that, uh, go to iTunes or your favorite pod catcher and uh, check out Life of Caesar. Um, A friend and I, Cameron Riley, uh, he was one of the hosts of the Napoleon Bonaparte uh, podcast, which is the very first podcast I listened to. It was absolutely phenomenal. You should check that out too. But anyway, he and I together um, have covered the life of Augustus Caesar. It's very different from World War II podcast. It's it's irreverent. Um, we throw in uh, some inappropriate jokes. We throw in a lot of 80s music whenever we get a chance and try to have fun with it. But we do take um, exploring his life um, and the events around it very, very seriously. So check it out. It's for free on iTunes or wherever. Uh, if you search Life of Caesar, you'll find it, but don't be surprised when you see Augustus Caesar in the title, because that's who we cover. So if you get a chance, check it out. Tell me what you think of it. And now I will leave you alone. Until next week, take care, everyone.